Hello, and welcome back to the Agents of Change in Environmental Justice podcast, a partnership between Environmental Health News and Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. I'm Brian Binkowski, your host, senior editor at Environmental Health News and the editor of Agents of Change. Well, welcome to April. It is baseball season. Go Detroit Tigers. And for most of you, it's probably spring, though here it's still very much winter in the north. But that's okay. I'll be getting out the bike and planting seeds soon enough. Speaking of seeds, I have a great interview today for anyone out there interested in farming and food. But first, I wanted to encourage all of you listening to follow Agents of Change in Environmental Justice wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us and we will deliver a new podcast every two weeks with leaders in the environmental justice field. This isn't just science. We get to know the people behind the movement. So join us. Alrighty, as promised, we have a good one today. I am talking to fellow Alexa White, a PhD candidate in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Michigan. We talk about the importance of empowering small farmers around the world, the fascinating field of agroecology, climate justice, and Alexa's habit of bungee jumping, surfing, and other thrill-seeking adventures that I would never do. Enjoy. All right. I am super excited to be joined by Alexa White. Alexa, how are you doing today? I am great. How are you? Excellent. And where are you today? I'm in Ann Arbor, Michigan at the University of Michigan. Ann Arbor. Lovely. About five hours, about five hours south of me. Do you have a favorite coffee shop down there? Uh, not really. I most of the time just I'm kind of cheap and I take coffee to the library. <laughs> I'm on a grad there, student's budget. <laughs> there's there is nothing wrong with that. I my my wife is a fancy coffee drinker and when I treat her, I cannot believe how much it costs. There just used to be a coffee shop down there. My sister lives there called I think it's Ruse, Ruse Roast or yeah. something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny and that it's, you bring up coffee shops because I, I study coffee. <laughs> oh, well, well, heck, we will we will get into that. That is that is perfect. I just remember Ruse being a very vibrant, progressive uh, hive of, of fun people and activities. So I figured I'd ask on the off chance that you'd been there. But uh, let's go back before Ann Arbor and uh, all the way back to the beginning. So you are from Newark, New Jersey. And I know uh, I happen to know that your grandfather's life and his relationship with you had a profound impact on your upbringing and kind of eventual career. So talk about growing up there and a little bit about that relationship. Yeah. So uh, my grandparents, they were both sharecroppers from uh, the American South. My grandfather came from North Carolina and my grandma came from um, Texas. And so all all the the period of me growing up, I pretty much uh, spent all my after school days with them. And any time that my parents were busy, they dropped us off at my grandparents' house, So. Um, they really had a big, uh, influence on how I related to nature because they would take us to parks and specifically in the backyard, we would grow a lot of gardens and things. And I didn't, I didn't really have an idea of how significant that relationship was, how, uh, important those kinds of, uh, moments were until I got a lot older and understood where, where that knowledge came from in terms of the history of America and them having to produce a certain amount of food to, satisfy the the white landowners that they used to live with um, when they were growing up. 
And what was it about uh, growing food and plants? Because I know this is kind of merged into your career. What was it that spoke to you? Yeah, it wasn't until I honestly got to graduate school that I felt empowered enough to bring my own history into my research. And so I I used to be a herpetologist. I used to study lizards and run around deserts and collect them. Um, and it wasn't until I got here to Michigan, I, I was in, I mean, I, I'm in an agroecology lab and I started to think about the farmers that I was meeting and really try to kind of put their lives into perspective and it just was a moment actually I was in I was in Mexico and I was still doing the lizard research and I realized like my grandparents know a lot about this like why do I know so much about farms and how things are supposed to be grown and why is this intimate connection to food so ingrained in me and it was kind of just a a moment of um uh massive impact where it was like maybe I should go back home during Christmas and talk to my grandparents more seriously about uh, where they came from and where I come from. And were they having those conversations with you when you were, when you were a child? Yeah, they were. Yeah. They would talk about having to grow specific crops and trying to, um, I guess, appease the the landowner and how their siblings would um, all have to kind of get up early in the morning to either go pick cotton or, there would be different fruits and vegetables, um, uh, different animals that they'd live with and were used to kind of like find different things, chickens, dogs. Um, yeah, they, they told me those stories all the time. And I feel like in a lot of African-American homes, their grandparents tell them a lot of these stories. But the context doesn't really come until you're a lot older and kind of can see the world for yourself. Um, so, yeah, those those stories were definitely uh, part of my, my childhood. Maybe you spoke to this in that last thing you said, and I don't want to kind of probe generational trauma, but were you aware of kind of the gravity of what they were telling you? Or were you thinking, Oh, they grew okra or something, or was it, was it, there was a gravity lost on you at that age or did you, were you aware of it? No, I knew it was bad. I was very aware. They would talk about times where they would shift from stories about how they, were um, putting in like seeds for for harvest for next year. And then if they were to go to school, uh, white folks would throw rocks at them from the buses because they couldn't ride the buses and they would have to hide in the bushes and how they had to go to different schools and how they noticed that there were differences in the books and in the schoolhouses that they were in. So they they did not hold back. And I think that kind of is uh, another reason why I have a part of my personality that I have. Um, they, they were very much um, outspoken about uh, the injustices that they faced, but um, they also, there was also, there's always a bright side. They were also very, um, looked fondly back on those memories of them working on farms in some way. Well, and the real bright side is that you have taken some of this knowledge and are running with it in a, in a really cool way with your research. And we, I want to get into that, but we uh, first have to ask my, my favorite question, which is what is a defining moment or event that has shaped your identity up to this point? Yeah, so I would say that the biggest turning point in my life actually happened very early on. Um in high school, well, actually, before high school, I really didn't talk at all, which is crazy because now I talk all the time. Um, and 
I uh, was very shy and my father um, really wanted me to get involved into an extracurricular. And so uh, I would join things and quit, join volleyball, quit, join fencing, quit. And when I got to debate, I got in the car, I said I wanted to quit. And he said, no, you have to get out of the car and you're going to go to debate practice and you're going to go for a year. And every single day I would come back and complain about it. But it grew to be a part of me. I, I, I realized that I really liked like critical arguments. I liked talking about race theory. I really liked talking about the world and the, the function of um, us as individuals within that. And debate in high school, it changed the way that I... I talk every day the way that I think. Um, I think that uh, kind of getting those international, those uh, international and national experiences at championships was really important because most of the schools that we would debate against, they came from rich white neighborhoods. Um, they uh, that's the kind of space that debate is. It's very posh and you uh, have a bunch of uh, evidence and you kind of dress up and you talk in a certain way and you make an argument. And I kind of combated that and I found my voice um, in high school um, by kind of taking notice of the way that the space was constructed and oppression and racism and arguing about it. And I kind of have been doing that for the rest of my existence. um, And it's fun. And it's also really inspiring. It's kind of a way for me to feel optimistic about the future. It has to be such a balancing act as a parent to to want to push your kids into something because it altered your life for the better, but not being a parent that's forcing their kid to do something they don't want to do. Yeah. Know? I mean, for a year, I didn't want to do it. And then I made friends and then it was fine. <laughs> right. Yeah. Once you get comfortable that I feel like that's I was a shy kid, too. And once you get comfortable, it's a it's a totally different. Well, that's great. Let's talk about your research a bit. So you mentioned agroecology and um, I, I'm familiar with it because I, I actually run a small organic farm with my wife. Um, and I'm really interested in, in what you're doing and others are doing. But can you just define it for listeners who may not know what that field means? Yeah. Um, agroecology, the easiest way to remember it is agriculture and ecology. So farms are managed ecosystems. That's the best way to kind of uh, sum up uh, the statement of what agroecology is. And so um, it's the interaction between a managed ecosystem where um, people are having inputs and put in crops and uh, things that uh, work to the benefit of a human uh, and try and work and synergistically uh, operate within the system that is the unmanaged ecosystem. So uh, forest edges and anything outside of a farm. And so um, there's different types of biodiversity within uh, agroecology. So the managed biodiversity. So for example, if you were to um, have a polyculture, that would mean that you would be growing many different things So you would grow tomato and kale and um, a bunch of different crops. And they would also interact with the associated biodiversity. So when you think of pollinators, you think of um, seed dispersers like birds and bats and different mammals, um, all of that is is included in agroecology and thinking about how the farm interacts with everything else. And so you're looking into the positive impacts that small-scale farmers in particular have had on biodiversity and food security. So first, what are some of these positive impacts, and do you have some examples? Yeah, so family farms, smallholder farms, that's defined as a farm that is two hectares or less. And so the majority of the world's farms are small scale farms. So that's 98% of all farms. 
Um, and so although they uh, are 90% of all the farms that exist, they only manage about 50% of the agricultural land. So that just kind of leads you into the thought of, well, who else is, is taking over this? So large-scale industrial farms have the, the vast majority or have half of the land in the world. And so um, the the family farms, though, are producing the majority of the, cal- the, the caloric requirements um, for us to survive. And they also produce the majority of the world's food. If we, if we didn't have small-scale farms, we would all starve, essentially. And so there are a lot of uh, case studies that have been done, but particularly in, in Brazil and in Malawi, um, those have uh, the most kind of diverse range of, like, uh, policy approaches and uh, ways that we can really think about how small-scale farms fit into our lives. Um, but they're very, very important. If we did not have them, I'd just like to emphasize, we would all starve. And I don't want to vilify one farm versus the other, but if we can just kind of set the stage, since you kind of look at things through this ecological lens, when we think of kind of large-scale, very intensive agriculture, what are some of the ecological impacts um, that, yeah. that we can expect to see? Yeah, so there's something called uh, food regimes. And so these are basically uh, the historical periods through which agriculture changed. And so we're currently living in the industrial uh, food regime, corporate food, uh, corporate corporate farms. And so um, when you think about industrial sized farms, there are a lot of inputs that are required. Usually it's only one crop that's being grown. So when we go back to that image of um, a polyculture where there are different kinds of far- there are different kinds of crops um, that are interacting with things from the outside, when you only have one thing on your farm, it's really susceptible to a lot of disease to spread very quickly and a lot of pests to come in. So that's why there's a lot of use of pesticides in order to keep those things off of uh, the crop. And there's a lot of needs for fertilizer because there isn't really a diversity in, in the roots that are um, uh, growing in the soil. And so... Um, the if you were to think about uh, livestock, for example, it's the same kind of thing, right? So disease can spread really easily among cows, and they usually take up a lot of swaths of land um, as well as water. So um, industrial agriculture is really characterized by um, a lot of needs for inputs. So it sounds like, just like in most kind of cases in life, diversity builds out resilience exactly. in these systems. Mm-hmm. And and so climate is another kind of big uh, cloud hanging over all of this. And when we think about international climate policy and policymakers, what are some of the ways that small scale farmers are, are misrepresented and what are some ways that we could change that? Yeah. So uh, a large part of the work that I do is uh, looking at climate governance on an international scale. So um, the United Nations hosts uh, the Conference of Parties every year um, where basically world leaders and uh, different representatives from countries come together to talk about what they're going to do about climate change. Um, And I've been to four. Um, If you know about uh, the Paris Climate Accord, Paris Climate Agreement, um, that one was really important, but I, that was the first one I went to and I noticed that there, there are no farmers talking. There, there are barely any, there's barely anyone really speaking at these conferences that, um, have anything to do with food or have any influence over kind of the documents that are coming out of it. And then last September, uh, President Biden, he, uh, convened another kind of, um, international conference, the United Nations Food Systems Summit. And so, 
This summit was meant to uh, figure out the kinks in our global food system, as we can see from COVID-19. Um, whenever there's a big perturbation, it kind of fails. It's it's not it's not foolproof. Um, when we think about uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, their production of wheat definitely had an impact on uh, the food markets. And so uh, back to the, the food system summit, it was largely put on by a lot of large agribusinesses and not really a lot of um, farmers who uh, kind of do the day to day and have those family farms and feed their families. And so my research really concentrates on these mistakes and looks at the relationship between farmers and everyone else. So farmers and politicians, NGO leaders and academics and tries to figure out um, how we can improve those relationships and what that really means for the future of food when we think about climate change impacts. And what are some ways that you or others have teased out that we could be doing things better? Yeah, so um, at the international scale, uh, I think that there are plenty of ways to include farmers' voices. I would say that just the just the inclusion of farmers in these processes is very, very important for us to understand the context of how large of a problem this is and kind of will transform to being. Um, so... Uh, the majority of uh, our farms, like I said, are small scale farms. And so um, in uh, at a more local level, um, as opposed to international, uh, having intimate connections with the land and having very personal connections with your farmers is really important. And it's also it's also good for you. Right. So if you were to know that. Um, you could get uh, a box of food, have a subscription and um, have a really good connection with the person who, you know, uh, grew that food. Um, that would be good for the farmer as well as it, it would be good for you. Um, so uh, that's that's called the CSA. So um, uh, there are also food co-ops uh, that you uh, lots of uh, municipalities have uh, installed into their infrastructure. And so. Yeah, I would say that um, having a more intimate connection to your food and kind of understanding where it comes from is the first step. And then if we're thinking about international scale, farmers' voices are really important. I found uh, we grow stuff here that is very adapted to a northern climate because we're in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, um, my wife and I. And I found it's kind of retrained my brain of what I eat throughout the year. So maybe I'm not eating tomatoes in January and maybe that's okay. And it's squash time. Uh, so it's kind of put me more in tune with uh, what we can grow here, when we can grow it, and when it's uh, it's okay to not eat exotic things throughout the year. Sometimes, I guess. Yeah, yeah. A famous a, a something I bring up in most of my talks is that if you're in New York City uh, in February, how can you get a mango from the supermarket? <laughs> I, I I always ask that question and folks kind of like their eyes get big and it's like, oh, yeah, like, how did I do that? It's like, yeah, it came from a lot of the the the, the mango reserves actually come from Mexico and places that are near the equator, different Caribbean islands. And so, yeah, if you think about seasonality and kind of like how much how much fuel to take to bring that over here, who actually grew it, um, what what was used to keep it in season wherever it was. That's all important. That's all stuff that kind of you should think about when you grab those things at the grocery store. 
I also think it's fun. I don't feel deprived. I mean, I, I do think there are things that obviously I still buy out of season and so on and so forth. But it, it's fun. It's fun to think about uh, ways of kind of being uh, throughout the year, eating in a different way. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of things so, you can eat that are in season that are geographically correct. Yeah. Totally. So where does the coffee come into all this? Yeah. So I um, got into coffee as uh, a PhD student here at University of Michigan. So I am in an agroecology coffee lab. And so um, I study how coffee kind of allows for entry into markets. So coffee is like a luxury product, right? It's something you drink um, for caffeine and you kind of drink it in the morning or, or right after you eat your dinner. Um, and so uh, my work is centered around uh, Jamaican Blue Mountain coffee um, in the Jamaican Blue Mountains and then uh, Kona coffee in Hawaii. And so I speak to those farmers and try to understand uh, what else they grow outside of the coffee and then um, what the what the coffee really brings them. How do they grow? What do they choose to do when they manage that coffee? Have you got to go to those places and what does those what do those interactions look like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting into the Jamaican Blue Mountains is very hard. You have to know how to off road. Um, <laughs> it's it's very uh, high elevation and uh, the communities there are very close knit. Uh, it's, it was a, a very um, inspiring uh, summer I had last summer. I was there for about two and a half months. And yeah, uh, I talked to farmers um, off the side of the road, um, ask them about their day, ask them what they uh, have been doing uh, in terms of their farms for the past few years. And most of them come from generations of farmers. Um, they have a lot of um, uh, generational knowledge about what they're growing and uh, a very kind of uh, deep connection to the land that they have. And um, it's it's very eye-opening to kind of go and, and see that um, they can grow everything that they need uh, for for their day-to-day lives. And then um, right after that, I went to Hawaii, Kona, uh, Kailua, Kona, Hawaii, and um, spoke to different coffee farmers there. Um, and it's very different, obviously. So we're talking about um, the U.S. Uh, versus um, nations of the global south. And so Um, everyone there, uh, usually they have, um, different kinds of, uh, monetary resources. So I spoke to a lot of retired doctors and lawyers, um, and, uh, it's much more of something that they do as a hobby. Um, they would grow, uh, various different kinds of fruits uh, and vegetables, um, alongside their coffee. Um, but largely it was, uh, an interest in, uh, kind of just having a special novelty coffee and um, it's just fun to them. So I, I don't want to put words in your mouth or uh, actions, <laughs> ascribe actions to you, but I know you're passionate about this and I'm just curious how you navigate these space, spaces as both a researcher and as an activist. Um, and if you don't call yourself an activist, that's fine. But uh, are those two roles ever in conflict? Um, I definitely do consider myself an activist as well as an academic. And yeah, they're in conflict. Um, Academia as an institution um, has historically been very uh, extractive um, in terms of kind of how science is done and the ethics behind it. 
And I don't want to be, um, I don't want to be a steward of that. I, I, I try my best not to participate in those kinds of um, activities. And so when it comes to kind of trying to balance those, I um, oftentimes try to work into my budgets ways that I can help out farmers by either giving them uh, some sorts of seeds or whatever they, they need, um, while also um, asking for their permission to use um use the data to uh, further the agenda of the small farmer. And so um, I I really do find that um, whenever I go to kind of like these international conferences and try and understand exactly uh, what's supposed to be happening um, and trying to get these farmers to uh, have the opportunity to speak there, um, there's definitely an internal conflict with my ability to kind of go to these conferences versus their ability to, to go to these conferences. And I hope to pioneer spaces where um, farmers can have a voice and can speak about these things themselves. And are there examples of places, leaders, organizations that you think are incorporating black, indigenous and other marginalized farmer voices and perspectives and they're doing it in a way that that you think is good? Absolutely. So La Via Campesina is um, known as the Peasants Movement. They have uh, a lot of uh, agroecology principles, specifically food sovereignty. And so what food sovereignty means is that you should be able to have um, control and knowledge and uh, cultural influence over your food. Everyone has a right to all of those things, which is very different from food security, right? So food security is, for example, if you were to go to a food bank and they were to give you like a can of corn and a bushel of apples, that would be considered food security as opposed to um, someone else who uh, has uh, an own culture of their food or wants to know where their food is coming from, they would be able to have land where they can grow their own food and uh, produce things that are within their culture and uh, that uh, they have more knowledge about. Um, And so, yeah, La Via Campesina, I would say, is the place for the kinds of uh, movements and ideologies that I'm talking about today. Very cool. And you mentioned, we talked a little bit about this corporatization of our food system and and how large farms own, I believe you said 50% of the land. Mm -hmm. What's what's something you find interesting about our current food system that other people may not know? Yeah, I I don't think people realize how close to home these issues are. So in in doing work in Hawaii, um, the, the current governor, he put on an initiative to try and get Hawaii to be more self-sufficient as in growing a lot of their own food throughout time. The, the farms have transitioned into more export crops uh, as opposed to uh, things that are kept internally. And so if there were to be a a natural disaster, let's say um, uh, they're hit by a hurricane, which uh, is unlikely, but they would only have enough food to survive for three days if they were cut off from the rest of the world. Um, And so Things like that and like understanding that the food system is very volatile and and not as stable as people think. I think it's really important for folks to understand that um, it can't maintain itself uh, through what we know is going to happen with climate change. Right. And even beyond that, just just wars and and different things, we have to be able to be more self-sufficient with our food and not require so many 
um, imports of, uh, of food. And when I say we, I mean Americans. Um, but generally, uh, island nations, um, nations in the old world, uh, the, the concept that we can kind of just keep exchanging food all across the world is very, it's very antiquated and it can't really survive um, the test of time. Do you still grow any food for yourself? And would you ever have an interest in farming? Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, I live in a co-op myself and we have a garden uh, where we grow a lot of fruits and vegetables. So tomatoes, kale, cucumbers. Um, And so uh, I hope to be able to acquire some plot of land uh, when uh, I graduate and uh, have my own farm and uh, be able to uh, produce food for my my friends and family. Um, The gardens that that are at my grandparents' house right now aren't enough to um, sustain our family. But uh, I think another really important thing, and now that I mention that, is that um, acquiring land is very hard. And land is uh, kind of um, segmented off by various uh, government organizations and, and corporations. And the acquire, acquiring land is really key to... Um, kind of the movements in, in the ideal and in, in, in the ideas that I, that I'm proposing today. Right. I can attest to that. <laughs> Acquiring land is, is difficult. And there's yeah. obviously, there's so many factors that play into it. Uh, population, urbanization. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, that is, that is a challenge. So it sounds like you have plenty going on, but you have also started a think tank and nonprofit. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. The AYA Research Institute. That is that is correct? perfect. Yes. The AYA, AYA Research Institute. Yeah. So early on at Howard University, uh, I uh, had a group of friends and And we were kind of recruited by Dr. Beverly Wright, who is the director of the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice in New Orleans. And so we all were scientists, uh, baby scientists, and uh, we kind of um, got into environmental justice through her. And one of my friends, Adria Pedekin, she's now a Ph.D. student at uh, MIT in nuclear engineering. We decided that we wanted to create a think tank. Um, We noticed that. A lot of scientists and engineers don't really know that much about community engagement and what it means to um, kind of interact with communities with uh, without being extractive or without um, kind of getting the wrong results or not not really getting what what they what they want out of the work that they're doing. And so the in 2020, uh, we founded the the AYA Research Institute and um, have been doing projects that are centered around um, bringing more scientists and engineers into the field of environmental justice, as well as trying to inform policy about the direction of environmental justice, which is really important considering um, the Biden administration's uh, Justice 40 um, uh, development. And it's uh, pronounced AYA, and it's AYA Research Institute. Can you explain the significance of the name? Yeah, so AYA is a, a symbol, uh, an African and Dinka symbol uh, for uh, resilience. And so we really wanted to embody that. We wanted to kind of ground ourselves in uh, our African-American roots and um, have uh, a symbol that described having an intimate connection to the land and having an intimate connection to your work. Um, and so uh, IA Research Institute is is meant to be a space where uh, we kind of embody community engagement. Um, and uh, yeah, IA is the, is the symbol that we chose. Excellent. 
And what are you optimistic about, Alexa? I am optimistic about the optimism in academia that I've been seeing lately. Um, that's a little bit redundant, but a lot of the work that, that I kind of uh, grew up reading about climate change, grew up reading about the food system, grew up reading about science, usually it's been very gloom and doom, kind of, we have to be worried about this and we have to be really uh, cautious about that. And now I'm realizing, as well as other peers of mine, that we are not getting where we need to go and we need to come up with very uh, firm solutions on what needs to happen. And so um, the latest spaces that I've been working in have been uh, concerning environmental justice screening tools. So environmental justice screening tools are meant to be these mapping devices that can identify um, disadvantaged populations and uh, possible impacts that they will see in the future. And so in these spaces, um, there, there are federal ones, there are state ones, there are different individual organizations that are creating them. And I see it as a very optimistic way to go about things because we're um, identifying ways to resolve these problems. And uh, the conversations that I'm having with people are uh, much more solution oriented as opposed to identifying issues. So to switch gears here, I know you are something of a thrill seeker. We had the good fortune to meet uh, before this program started. I think you mentioned bungee jumping. Maybe it was skydiving, but it's these kind of crazy things that most of us would never do. So where did this thrill seeking in you come from and what's the what's the craziest thing you've ever done? Yeah, so I did bungee jump and I have skydived. <laughs> so both of them. I did both of them more than once. Um, yeah. I don't know where it came from. Um, <laughs> I was studying abroad in New Zealand, and I i don't know why I could, tried to convince everybody I knew to go bungee jump, jumping with me, and then I did, and <laughs> it was the best day of my life, or one of the best days of my life. Um, yeah, I, I think I just really enjoy, I really enjoy transformation, and I really enjoy kind of like getting through hard things and coming out on the other side, and so... Um, yeah, I'd say the the last really thrill seeky thing that I did was um, it was actually another another bungee jump in Croatia. I went with some of my friends. I went with Adria, one of the 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 other co founder of Aya. Um, and yeah, I I just like to oh surfing surfing is very hard. Oh my god, <laughs> I did not know that surfers had that much endurance and like skill but it's hard um well that's that is so cool i think i know the feeling you're talking about i don't know if there's a word for it but the feeling of having gotten through something uh and and then you can reflect on it and be talk about it and have fun you know i i, th I think i know exactly what you're talking about exactly yeah it's, it's really fun I don't know if I would bungee jump to do it, but um, I would also categorize is. myself as a, a adrenaline junkie. So, yes, I think that's you have not to as be. good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So before I get you out of here, and this has been so much fun to hear more about your work, I have three rapid fire questions where you can just answer with one word or a phrase. Uh, my favorite thing to cook is um macaroni and cheese. <laughs> My favorite thing to grow in the garden is uh, figs. <laughs> what was the highlight of this past week for you? I actually just came back from New Orleans, and so it's Mardi Gras there. I have uh, several friends uh, that that joined me, and so that was really fun to get back to get back to the Big Easy. 
Awesome. And you don't have to confine yourself to one word or phrase here, but what is the last book you read for fun? I'm really into Afrofuturism at this moment. Um, so I'm rereading things with a different perspective. So Octavia Butler, she does a lot of work um, with that I, I'm interested in. Or I'm rereading Parable of Sour and Kindred. Awesome. Well, Alexa, this has been such a great time. It's been great to hear more about your work. And thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's been a great time. All right, that's all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Alexa. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit agentsofchangeinej.org. That's our homepage. You can find everything there. And while you're there, click the donate button to support us. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram. And please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to this and all past episodes. This podcast was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me with outreach scheduling and support from the rest of the team. Dr. Ami Zoda, Dr. Yoshira Ornelas Van Horn, Dr. Vina Singla, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Lariah Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and Maria Paula Rubiano. Our music is Now Sun by Poddington Bear. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join me next time when I speak to fellow Kevin Patterson a PhD student in environmental health sciences at Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. Have a great week, folks.